Good morning, Central Park Baptist Church. Good morning to you all. How are we doing this morning? We're doing good? We're doing all right? Doing okay? Doing okay over there? All right. Hey, man, glad to have everyone here this morning. If you're able to rise, we would love for you to join us in singing Hymn 504, Count Your Blessings. Hymn 504, Count Your Blessings. Count Your Blessings, Hymn 504. After this, we will have a word of prayer. Hymn 504, Count Your Blessings. We also thank you again for your mercy and goodness here, Lord. Lord, so thank you again for the people who are gathered together here to worship you and to praise your name here. Lord, we just want to ask you to help us have a great day today and then help us to, uh, help us to listen, to your, listen to your word here Then help us to realize that what God has done for us and what God, has, what God is doing for this church and ministry. We just want to thank you again for everything you have done. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. And if you're able to remain standing, we would love for you to join us with hymn 341. Hymn 341, He Included Me. He Included Me. <laughs> Yes, I'm so happy. 
Man, I'm telling you, when you learn to depend upon his word, you realize that there's power in the blood. Amen. Hymn number 362, as we stand. Hymn number 362. Let's sing, There is Power in the Blood. seated. Good morning and welcome to Central Park Baptist Church this morning. We're awful glad that you're here. Thank you so much for coming and, and welcome. If you're a first-time visitor here this morning, if you're a first-time visitor here and you did not receive a visitor card, we want you to have one. If you'll slip your hand up uh, nice and high, we'll get you one right here and uh, everybody else get one. Fill that out, if you will, after the service. Uh, if you'll bring that to me out in the foyer, uh, I'll exchange that for a gift bag. I got a gift bag for you of things that give you for coming. And we want to thank you for coming and being a part of Central Park Baptist Church. There's many churches out here, many churches. But you chose to be with us this morning, and we're awful glad that you, you're here. And we're praying that God will be a blessing to you while you're here this morning. Thank you for coming, and welcome to Central Park. Amen. Well, you got to be here. Say amen. 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 Just think spring is right around the corner. Well, y'all didn't seem like you believed me too much, but February is here, and be gone before you know it, and then March, and to me, March is just warm, it's time to warm up, amen, I'm, I'm ready, I do not like cold weather, any of you people in here like cold weather, good, the invitation will be open for you in just a few minutes, and you can, you can come and get right, amen, uh, but I'm glad that you're here this morning. I appreciate you coming. It's good to have Brother Reitman here with us today. I want to make sure that you uh, make sure you let him know you're glad that he's here. 
and uh, look forward to the message that God's laid upon his heart for uh, through him for us today. So let me encourage you to listen. But now it's time to have an offering. Amen. 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 And may God bless you this morning because, listen, God will not be a debtor to you and I. Amen. Uh, he said, give and it. Child. Yep, there you go. And that's just, you read the rest of that, it'll, it's pretty much self-explanatory. Amen. Amen. But God blesses a cheerful giver this morning. So may the Lord bless you as you give. Dear Father, we're thankful for this day. Thank you, Lord, for our folks that are here on this uh, Sunday morning. I pray, God, that, uh, Lord, that uh, you'd bless those uh, that are here. May we go away and say it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. Thank you for all of our guests that are with us this morning as well. I pray, God, that you'd just bless. Bless this offering. Bless the gift and the giver, Lord, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have an offering, you please come.
we dismiss fifth grade and under, children's fifth grade and under, you are now dismissed for junior church, the Korean ministry, you are now dismissed for Korean church. Before Brother Will sings this morning, I just want to again uh, uh, just uh, let Brother Reichman know we're glad he's here today and introduce him just a little bit. And uh, so that way, once he gets started, you know, I don't want to inter- you know, you can't interrupt him. Right. right. So, uh, oh, and, and let me say this too now. We've got a lot going on today. Yeah. We've got food in the back and all those things. But listen, that is secondary to what's going on in here. Amen. So, uh, I mean, all the way up until the time we sing Victory in Jesus this morning, uh, we need to make sure that we are in here and engaged in the preaching of the Word of God from the man of God today. So, uh, let me encourage you, uh, just uh, when the invitation starts, stay in here, don't get up, it's not time to go to the restroom, any of those kinds of things. We've been, we've been kind of getting a little loose about that, so let's tighten up a little bit, amen? Amen. Amen. Y'all go ahead and say amen. Amen. And uh, so unless it's an absolute emergency, stay in here, okay? And uh, let's give, uh, let's, if, you know, we've done all these other things, but it's time to allow the Holy Spirit of God to work in our hearts, all right? Amen. Thank you, Brother Wills. Go right ahead.
It's been a long time since I've heard that song. That's a, it's a great song. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Good morning. That is, that's better. See, it's my job to put you to sleep. If you start out that way, I have nowhere to take you. So, and I always stay down here partly because I can't see over these things. And uh, every time I get behind a pulpit, I'm reminded what Jesus said. Lo, I am with you always. <laughs> When you see Saul stood head and shoulders above the people, don't get too excited. He's only like 5'8". <laughs> uh, the other thing is I'm a wandering Jew, so I like to move around a little bit. And, uh, and that just seems too far away. But anyhow, um, I appreciate uh, being here again and uh, always enjoy being with your pastor and his wife. And, and uh, we had a wonderful time several years ago in Israel. And uh, uh, we had talked about going again. And, and I, I have a tour going this year, uh, May 15th to the 25th. That tour, I had to push the dates because my guy had retired. And then now she's coming out of retirement. And she's going stir crazy sitting at home. Yeah. But she's only going to do like one tour a month instead of, one every week, and she's 80 years old. You know, I asked, I said, are you going to be able to, to do this? And she said, and keep up with this? She said, so instead of leaving at 8 o'clock, we'll leave at 8.30. <laughs> Just wrestle, not take it as fast. But anyhow, um, so worked out well, because I normally go the end of April to the beginning of May, and uh, it worked out really well because our second grandbaby is due to discover America on April 28th. And so if, if I was, if I'd kept to my normal dates, I'd have been in Israel then. And this way I get to be home and enjoy that and celebrate that. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. I'm calling them Opie. Michelle hates it. But I asked my nephew, uh, my nephew, my son-in-law, he's, his last name is Taylor, and he's from North Carolina. So several years ago, I said, you're going to name my first grandson Opie? Yes. He, he immediately said no. So I've been calling him Opie, and Michelle, she hates that. She said, you can't do that. I said, till they give me something else to call him, he's Opie. <laughs> He'll probably come home after spending the time with, a day with me and said, Mama, why is... Zeta keep calling me Opie. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bad habit I've already gotten into. But anyway, um, so I say all that to say this. I'm already taking deposits for next year. I don't have the dates exactly yet. I have to get with my guide. To, and part of the problem is um, Passover comes late next year. And we have to be there between Passover and Pentecost 
because otherwise it's just, you don't want to be there during uh, that time. Um, but anyhow, next year's odd because we have the crucifixion coming after the resurrection. Easter comes about three weeks before Passover. <laughs> only, only human beings could have accomplished that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that pushes our dates. We may be in May again next year. Uh, but the weather is beautiful. We'll have a wonderful time. And you can get on our website. That's on our ministry brochure. Make sure you pick one of those up. On the back at the bottom is our website address. It won't, it, it right now will say 2023 tour. But if I get your deposit uh, through the website, then I'll know it's for 2024. And then I'll send you some uh, uh, emails. When I send you emails, do me a favor, open them up and read them. I have a lady that she signed up sending her deposit, and I've been sending out emails constantly, updates and all of this, and she hasn't sent back any of the information that she's supposed to send me. And I finally got a hold of her on the phone, and she said, oh, I never look at my email. <laughs> she's in Alaska. I said, how am I supposed to communicate with you? Look for my emails, and she said she would, and she still hadn't responded to any of them. So I've got her deposit, and I'm keeping it. She, she doesn't show up. That's her fault. But anyway, I'd love to take you with me. I promise it'll be a life-changing event, and your Bible will never read the same. It's like reading it in color once you've been there like this. And I always say that uh, what separates my tours from all these others, I actually give you Israel from a Jewish perspective. And folks, that's the only way to go to Israel. Come on, going to Israel with a Gentile? It's like going to Mexico with a gringo. What's the point? You need the Jewishness. And when I can give that to you in the backstory and the things you've been cherishing in the Word of God all these years, your Bible comes to life. It'll never read the same. So think about it, pray about it. After the service at dinner, talk to me. Ask me any question you have about it, but let's get you signed up. And let's go to Israel. Now, they're not requiring the vaccine, the, the COVID vaccine, or even COVID tests at this point. So it's a lot easier and a whole lot better. Um, I do have some CDs and DVDs of messages that I preach, and I won't go take the time to go into those, but their messages will help you to learn your way into this mindset so that you can have an effective witness to the Jewish people you'll come in contact with. It will help you to appreciate your faith being rooted in the same Jewish Messiah, Yeshu, Jesus, helps us. We put the proceeds right back into ministry. Then our track outreach is moving right along. We um, sent this track. We're mailing it to Jewish families. And we, when I started this in the Metroplex, I was told there were only 60,000 Jewish people throughout the Metroplex. We sent this to 138,000 Jewish families. Not individuals, but families. If there are only two kids to each family, that means they're liberal Jews. Because if they're Orthodox, they'll have like six or eight kids. Uh, but we're being conservative, so that puts four people in a family times 138,000 families. You're pushing 600,000 Jewish people right here in the Metroplex. And no one knows they're here. And if you don't know they're here, you're not forming any outreach. So they're going neglected where the gospel is concerned. That makes us track 
huge. It may be the one gospel witness they're getting. Um, we've now, uh, we've been sending this to Jewish families now in Houston. And altogether, we've sent this to 160,000 Jewish families. When we're done with Houston, we'll focus on Austin and San Antonio. And then we'll look at the Phoenix area. There's a very large Jewish population there. And then tackle Florida. And that ought to take me to the rapture or to me going home to be with the Lord. <laughs> That's a big community. So anyway, again, you know how this works. There's a sign-up sheet on the table. Many of you have helped us by addressing envelopes. You'll decide how many envelopes you want to address. Stay in your comfort zone. You put too big a number on that paper and walk away going, wow, I don't know if I'll be able to do that many. You won't, you won't do any of them. Uh, we had a guy got all excited, wrote down he wanted 500. That was four years ago. We haven't seen a single envelope. Got too excited. Now he's, he's uh, embarrassed. So he won't even respond to Michelle's emails anymore. Stay in your comfort zone. You can always get more later if you want. Just contact Michelle and she'll help you out. So however many that you're going to address, you buy those envelopes, this size envelope, you'll buy the stamps. Put a stamp on each envelope. Michelle will send you an email with instructions on how you'll get the names and addresses. You'll hand address the envelopes. We don't want this to look like junk mail with a computer-generated label. You hand address them, package them up, put them in some kind of mailer, send them to us there in Fort Worth. And uh, we have folks in, in our church in Fort Worth that will stuff the envelope. When we have 1,000, we put them in the mail. But keep it in your prayers. We won't know the impact of this till we get to heaven. We have the same problem today they had in Jesus' day. The gospel writer tells us many of the chief rulers and Pharisees believe but in secret for fear of being put out of the temple and the synagogues. And we have that same problem still to this day. So we won't know. We get to heaven, somebody will stroll up to you on those streets of glory and say, you know, you put a stamp on an envelope, you hand addressed it. It came to my door. I opened it up, read things my rabbi wouldn't tell me. I searched this thing out, discovered who Messiah truly is. I'm here today because of it. You'll have as big a part of that as what we're having, and together we'll fulfill the Great Commission and get this vital message to my people, God's chosen people, a people group so often left out and neglected where our evangelistic missionary outreach is concerned. So pray, don't stop praying, all right? Well, when we get to Luke chapter 16, Jesus is pulling the veil aside and allowing us to peer into the heart of the earth. This is not a parable. This is an actual event that took place. It's kind of why I hate calling these things stories because as soon as you call it a story, it sounds fictional. This is an actual account of what took place. And he peeled that veil aside, allowed us to look into the heart of the earth, and we find two men. One was very wealthy, had everything the world had to offer. The other one was very poor and a beggar. And the Bible says that uh, each of them died. Down in Luke 16, verse 19, we pick up the account. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. 
And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. It's very important to understand the distinctions here. Lazarus, when he died, he was carried into Abraham's bosom. There were two compartments, so to speak, in the heart of the earth, separated by a great gulf in between that you couldn't pass from one to the other. Abraham's bosom is where the the saints of God, when they died, the Old Testament saints of God, and this really is an Old Testament account. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. The New Testament hadn't started yet. I know it's after that, that page in your Bible that says New Testament, but it's really still an Old Testament account because Jesus held the, the third cup of the Passover the night that he would be betrayed and said, this is the New Testament in my blood. The writer of Hebrews said, without the death of the testator, there is no testament. So this is before the cross. So it's really an Old Testament account. And so the Old Testament saints were held in reserve here in Abraham's bosom. When it, when it says that the rich man died and was buried, we know that he wasn't in Abraham's bosom, and this is indicative of a lost person dying. And then the following verses, he lifted up his eyes in torments in hell. And it's very descriptive, those two ways of expressing this. Throughout the Old Testament, the saints are noted as sleeping with their fathers. 11 times in 1 Kings, 14 times in 2 Kings, 11 times in 2 Chronicles. This is said of David, of Solomon, of Rehoboam, of Hezekiah, of Isaiah, of all of the the most well-noted people that you can think of in the Old Testament who were godly men and walked with God. They're noted as sleeping with their fathers, or here in Abraham's bosom. The reason that we have this is because they could not just, when they died, go to heaven. The sacrifice had not yet been made. The payment had not yet been made. Their sins were only covered. They were atoned for but they were not cleansed and removed. And this is the God that who declared, I am the Lord God. I sin not. I cannot look upon sin. I can't let sin enter into my presence. Had they died and gone straight to heaven, they would have brought their sin with them into the very presence of God. And God couldn't allow that to happen. So you have this place reserved in the heart of the earth known as Abraham's bosom. But this is atonement. Atonement is where the, in the Old Testament economy, the believers, and they were saints of God, they were believers, and they were saved the same way you and I are saved, folks. 
There's not one mode of salvation for the Old Testament saints and another mode of salvation for the New Testament saints. There is but one. The difference is they were saved looking forward to that promise. You see this in Abel and why God was uh, able, willing to accept Abel's sacrifice when he took the firstborn male of his flock and had a blood sacrifice. He was showing his faith in that ultimate sacrifice that one day would come when the Lamb of God himself would lay his life down and shed his innocent blood on his behalf. The reason God wouldn't accept Cain's is because Cain's was an offering of the works of his flesh. And it did not evidence this kind of faith. And it's just that simple. Our faith is looking back on a sacrifice that already has come. But it's all in the name, it's all in the blood, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So Old Testament to New Testament, there's only one mode of salvation. And so we find that in that day, their sins were just covered. They were just atoned for. But they weren't removed because the payment hadn't yet been made. Remember in Genesis 3, God comes, the voice of God comes walking in the cool of the evening through the garden. And uh, he's searching for that fellowship with Adam. The reason he created Adam was for that fellowship. And so he comes in the cool of the evening. Adam, where are you? Well, we're in the bushes hiding. What are you doing there? We were naked. We were ashamed. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree that I had forbidden you to eat from? And he rose up with all the chivalry he could muster. He said, that woman you gave me, she made me do it. It's her fault. And ladies, I'm sorry, but we've been blame shifting ever since. Stop expecting it to get better. Not going to happen. So they had, with the works of their own hands, fashioned fig leaves together, right? to cover their shame, their nakedness. It's the very definition of atonement. They tried to affect with their own, the works of their own hands their own atonement. It wasn't good enough, was it? God removed the fig leaves and replaced them with what? Animal skins. Ever ask yourself the question? Where do you get the skins? Innocent blood had to be shed. A substitutionary death had to be made in order to provide a covering, an atonement for their sin. And folks, this is a temporary fix. This was only until that ultimate payment would be made when Jesus, the, the Lord of glory, would go to the cross and shed his innocent blood and die that substitutionary death on our behalf. So this is atonement. It's an Old Testament term. It's an Old Testament concept. And we often use the word atonement as being synonymous with salvation. And they're two different things. I mean, I really find it improper to use atonement in a New Testament context. But I do it. I mean, 
I've been preaching too long and listening to too many preachers, and it just rolls off my tongue without going through my head, through my brain sometimes, the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. Well, it really isn't. It's the blood salvation. There's not a soul here this morning that would jump up and down excited that they have atonement. Because that means your sins are still here. They've just been covered. But we're all excited about the fact that our sins have been cleansed and removed. And the Bible says as far as the east is from the west and God remembers them no more. And we stand cleansed before God. So this is atonement. What we long for, what we look for, and what we revel in is salvation. So we go to Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, and we start out in verses 1 and 2, and we see the difference between atonement and salvation. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. I love the next verse, the next phrase. For them would they not have ceased to be offered? Every year the priest had to come. At Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, offer those sacrifices that Hebrews here is telling us could never make the one that brought that sacrifice perfect. It could never cleanse them of their sins. It would only cover their sin, but it would never remove it. Therefore, you had to do it year after year after year after year. So he goes on. He said, uh, for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. I got saved almost 54 years ago. And I have to tell you, when I go before the throne of God today, I'm only going before the throne of God today seeking forgiveness for the sins that I've committed now. Not for the sins I committed 54 years ago. Those are under the blood. Those have been cleansed and removed. And if I keep throwing those in God's face, it's like God's going, what are you talking about? And it's kind of like saying to God, Jesus isn't enough. You keep throwing your, the sins that he's already cleansed you of in his face. You keep bringing them up. And it's like telling him Jesus isn't enough. There must be something more I need to do in order to rid myself of this guilt of something that God is going, I don't know what you're talking about. Because my Bible says he remembers them no more. Why do we keep bringing them up before God? And it's the biggest trick of the devil to sideline believers, to keep them from serving him, is to keep them guilt-ridden over something God has already declared is forgiven and forgotten. So, anyway, so we see this and then... Not only are they, uh, uh, could those Old Testament sacrifices only cover and not remove, but it was impossible for them to, re, 
to remove and to cleanse us from that sin. Verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. This was the biggest object lesson going, folks. It was a sacrificial death. It was the shedding of innocent blood. And it was not putting our faith in that blood of that lamb or that bullock or that animal that was, whose blood was shed on that altar there at the temple. It was, it was a figure of the one that would come Amen. and putting our confidence and our faith in that one right. that would come and ultimately lay his life down for us. Verse 8. It's interesting because in verse 8 it says God has no pleasure in sacrifices. Verse 8, above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said I, then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. It seems interesting when you read this verse, it was God who established the sacrificial system. Why would he find no pleasure in it? Because those were only a stopgap. Those were only a temporary measure. Those were only a symbol of where our faith should be in the ultimate sacrifice that one day would come and Jesus declared he had brought that to its complete and its utter fulfillment. So in verse 11 and 12, we see Jesus and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So the high priest every year would go before God at Yom Kippur and they would offer the sacrifices. And Josephus tells us that at Yom Kippur there were as many as, uh, uh, well, 300,000 lambs that would be sacrificed. And he says that that's one lamb for every 10 men and boys. So you're talking about 3 million men and boys that are represented in this. And you have 300,000 lambs that are slain. And not one of them could take away their sin. And they have to do this year after year for thousands of years. They would come and they would would observe these sacrifices that could never take away sin. But this one man, but Jesus offered himself one time and then is sat down at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. Then we get down into understanding how Jesus' sacrifice brings to the utter completion and fulfillment that sacrificial system, and that's what satisfies God, and that's what brings God pleasure. And then in verse 17 is what I've already been mentioning. Verse 17, um, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. And then verse 18, now where remission or payment 
of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And so God looks at us. We've come under the blood. The blood's been shed. We've come under the blood. We've been cleansed of our sin. And he remembers our sin no more. Another passage says he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more. And then he goes on to tell us in verse 18 that where this payment, where remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. Jesus doesn't have to die again. He doesn't have to make the payment ever again. His one payment was sufficient for all of mankind, for every age of mankind. And when he shed his blood, it was over. He declared it is finished. And there is no more payment for sin. If you could lose your salvation, which you cannot, first of all, it's not your salvation. When David sinned, and when David committed adultery and covered it up, tried to cover it up by committing murder. And the prophet waved his bony finger in his face. David got all outraged at how this, at the account that he, the prophet was giving him. And I'm trying not to say Nathan because I called him Nabob one time. Because <laughs> I got Naboth and Nathan. I got him confused all mixed up and I was calling him Nabob and I did that through my whole sermon <laughs> only three people in the church noticed it unfortunately one was my wife and she came up that said, that was a good sermon Al but who in the world is Nabob I said he's Billy Bob's brother leave me alone you know <laughs> so he, he, he talks he, he confronts David with his sin but he gives him this, this story about someone who was very wealthy and he took what this very poor man had and uh, all of this and David got outraged and he said uh, he would um, judge him and he would throw him in prison and he goes thou art the man and David at that point repented before God and in that psalm of repentance go back and read it he doesn't ask for the Lord to save him again he said restore unto me the joy of thy salvation if it was mine I probably I might be able to lose it it's not mine it's God's salvation that by in the blood of Jesus he bestowed upon me and salvation after all it's everlasting life when does everlasting end it can't end folks look if you think that you can lose your salvation Think about this. I used to pastor in Chicago. Lake Michigan was right there. And I would tell people, if you fell into Lake Michigan and were drowning, and I jump in to save you. Now, first of all, that means you're in a world of trouble. (laughs) I'm going to do this. But if I get your body to shore in any other condition but alive, did I save you? No. By the same token, we are drowning in this ocean of sin. Jesus jumped into this ocean of sin to save us. If he doesn't get us to heaven, he never saved us in the first place. You've got to think these things through. So you can't lose it. And uh, 
We need to stop worrying about losing. If you could lose it, folks, Hebrews 10 tells us you couldn't get it back because there's no more payment. Once your sins have been paid for, there's no more payment. There's no more offering for sin. So therefore, you can't get it back. Don't paint yourself into an eternal corner that you can't get out of, all right? Anyhow, compare verse 18, where once paid, always paid, all right? Compare that with verses 1 and 2 that says that those sacrifices of the Old Testament could never take away sin. And now in verse 18, but this one man having offered himself one time for many is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And where this payment is made, there is no more offering for sin. It's done. It's complete. That's why I say that, that um, salvation is everything atonement longs to be. So watch Jesus now. Watch Jesus as he goes to the cross, suffers, he bleeds, he dies, he goes into the heart of the earth. He rises triumphantly over death, hell, and the grave, satisfying the righteousness of our holy God. And Ephesians 4 and verse 8, when he ascended to the Father, Paul tells us, that when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. Right. Who's that? Those are the Old Testament saints. That's right. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he emptied out Abraham's bosom. He led those held captive in Abraham's bosom, led captivity captive, and presented them before the Father. Now they could come before the throne of grace. Now they could come into the very throne room of God himself because their sins now have been paid for by the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross, and now they've been removed. And when God sees them, now they can come into his presence, and he doesn't see their sin merely being covered, and they're not bringing their sin into his presence. He sees them as sinless beings now, that beings that have been cleansed of their sin and, and he remembers their sin no more. And so we see all of these things happening when Jesus goes to the cross, cleansing us, removing that sin and separating them as far as the east is from the west. And God's righteousness then is satisfied. God looks at us and he doesn't see that sin. Therefore, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. You know, it's hard in a New Testament mindset. If I can put it this way, it's hard in a Gentile mindset to really understand the import of what that is saying when when he says we can now come boldly to the throne of grace because in Judaism, nobody comes boldly to the throne of grace. In Judaism, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, only the high priest went into the Holy of Holies beyond the veil. And he could only go one time a year on on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and he had to bring the blood of the sacrifice with him. The people were barred from that presence of this holy and righteous God. But now in the blood of Jesus, because we've been cleansed, 
from that sin and it's been removed from us. We're no longer barred from the presence. We can come into the throne room of God. And beyond that, the Holy Spirit of God and Jesus himself have now taken up residence within us. Now we're the temple of God himself. When you pray, when I pray, we're not praying to a God, an invisible God, so far out in the cosmos that we have no idea where that might be and how far away he may be. When we pray, we're praying to a God that's right here. And he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And the downside of that, the downside is he never leaves us. And he never forsakes us. That means when you're going through those dire circumstances of life, he's there. That means when you twist off and start chasing after the sin of this world, and go spend the night in, in the bars and go spend the night chasing women that you shouldn't be chasing. He's there. You're dragging this sinless God through the muck and the mire and the sin of this world with you. So there's a downside to this, and we need to wake up to that. And we need to stop offending our God by dragging him through that sin. And, and just walk with him on his level. But this is our game. This is what we get out of the deal. That we get our sins forgiven. We get a home in heaven for all of eternity. And far too many of us, that's the beginning and end of it. And we get so materialistic about it. And all we can think about are the streets of gold. Do you know any municipality that paves her street with anything of any inherent value? Have you ever been anywhere where the streets were paved of gold? I mean, they charge like it's gold. (laughs) Just pave this parking lot again, and they think it's gold, right? Gold could be cheaper. But uh, we pave with, with... Otherwise, something that has no value. It's just dirt and stone that they figured out how to make a a surface that we can drive on and walk on and stay out of the mud. When God says streets of gold, by the way, that's not heaven. Go back and read that description in Revelation. That's the heavenly city, that's the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven that has gates of pearl and streets of gold. But God is, in saying this, is saying, y'all are so materialistic. You kill for it, you steal for it, you lie for it, you cheat for it. It's so meaningless to me, I paid my streets with it. How about looking at it from that vantage point? And, t- and we all talk about this great mansion we have over the hilltop. Uh-uh. God said, I've prepared a place for you. What kind of a honeymoon is it going to be? We've waited all this time for the rapture and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then um, Jesus goes home to his father's house. And we're three miles away in our mansion. 
I don't know any bride that dreams of a wedding night like that. I don't know any groom that does. That usually comes about two or three days later, but, but not initially. So what I'm trying to say is, God, Jesus said, I go now to prepare a place for you. He's talking about the wedding chamber that he's building and adding on to his father's house. But we're so materialistic that all we can think about are mansions and streets of gold and all of this sort of thing. Is God even in the picture? When you got saved, since you've gotten saved, we talk about Jesus all the time. Do you ever talk about the Father? Do you ever spend any time with the Father? I've been saved 54 years. I've been in the ministry about 44, 45 years. And I, tr- I slept across this country in about 100 churches a year. For 26 years now I've been doing this. I don't hear anybody talking about their relationship with the Father. I hear them bragging about Jesus. And some will go off on and brag about the Holy Spirit. I listen to people pray in a church service and they're praying to Jesus. It's not what Jesus taught us to do. When you pray, you pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. I listen to people pray and they're they're all over the map. They're praying to the Father, they pray to the Holy Spirit, and then there's some they're praying to the devil. Because in the middle of their prayer, they'll go, now you sorry devil, and they'll just ream them out. You may not have thought of it like this, folks, but in the middle of your prayer, you're praying to the devil. Show me where God tells us to do that. But we don't pray to the Father. And we don't spend time with the Father. There's another word here that we use, trying to be synonymous with salvation and atonement, and that's redemption. Redemption is what the Father gets out of this. When we sing, I've been redeemed, we sing it like it's something I got. When, I, when, when we sing, I've been redeemed, that means God sacrificed and paid a huge price to bring us back into his existence. Are we letting God have what he paid for? I mean, think of it. Um, there's the Matthew chapter 13, the pearl of great price where the man found such great value in this pearl of great price. And he sold all that he had to acquire it. And this is a a portrait of God and his value that he holds for mankind. And what we've got to understand is when we go back to the Garden of Eden, how God created mankind for his own fellowship. He couldn't have it with the animals. He couldn't have it with the angels. So he convened the Godhead, let us make man in our own image. And in the image of God created he man, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We've got body, soul, and spirit, and they align. 
but every other bit of God's creation. Jesus, who's the agent of creation, spoke it all into existence. Wasn't good enough when it came to creating mankind. When it came to creating mankind, the Bible tells us he knelt to the earth and with his hands formed man out of the dust of the ground. And with his lips breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, making man a living soul. It's not said of any other of God's creation, only of mankind. I hate to break it to you. Your little puppy dog, when it died, didn't go to heaven. Doesn't have a soul that Jesus bled and died for. Somebody said, well, there are horses in heaven, not any horse that ever lived on earth. (laughs) And... Will one day mount those horses and come to earth. And Revelation 19 tells us so. But those horses were never running wild here on earth. He created us in his image. And he put more personal effort into creating us. My grandfather would say, and this is why we have a belly button. Because when he got done, he said, you're done, you're done, you're done, you're done. These are the theological thoughts that run through my head while I'm preaching. You might as well enjoy them too. Anyway, uh, suddenly, suddenly this fellowship that God created us for was stolen from him. It was stripped away from him when Adam fell to sin. And God had to bar Adam from the Garden of Eden, lest he take of the tree of life and live in that fallen condition for all of eternity but he never got over the fact that he created Adam for that fellowship and now he couldn't have it because Adam fell to sin you see Eve was beguiled but Adam made a conscious decision that's why it's called Adam's sin People say, well, where was Adam when Eve was beguiled? I think he was standing right next to her. I think when she took of that fruit, she handed it to Adam. Now, Adam had a problem. He knew that she was gone. She she was toast. It was over. So, he knew his choices were, I can take of the fruit and I can keep Eve but I'll lose God. I don't take the fruit. I keep God, but I lose Eve. And it was a much more difficult decision than what you're thinking because Adam is looking at the most gorgeous woman he's ever laid eyes on. Some of you will get that about 2 o'clock in the morning. She was the only one he'd ever seen, right? Okay, so... um, He chose Eve over God. He made a conscious decision. Therefore, it's Adam's sin. And this stripped that fellowship away from God, but God so desperately wanted it back that he was willing to pay a horrible price. And there's so much emphasis that's placed on what we get. Sermon after sermon after sermon details salvation. Our sin is forgiven. Our hearts are cleansed. Our soul is saved from hell. Our home is in heaven. 
pretty one-sided relationship, isn't it? Little if any recognition is given to God and his part in this relationship. So much so that you can be saved 10, 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years, and go every day of your life and think about Jesus, but you never commune with the Father. And there are three distinct persons of the Godhead, folks. And we do everything imaginable not to spend time with the Father. And we have every excuse you can think of. And folks, it's never been easier because we all have one of these. And you for free can get a Bible program on here, a King James on here. You can be, no matter where you are, communing with the Father. Learning of Him. Walking with Him. We just don't want to do it. We've never considered the Father in this. So is there any wonder that so many get saved and just totally disregard the Father? Make it a one-sided relationship. How, how important are your devotions to you? If you're still coming to preacher asking, do I have my devotions in the morning or in the evening? Then your devotions are not very important to you. If you still think that reading that paragraph and a half of our daily bread is sufficient, and you knock that out and think that you spend too much time with God today doing that, devotions aren't very important to you. Neither is God the Father. We need to, we need to begin our day with the Father and find ways throughout our day to spend time with the Father. Take on His mind and His will. Stop living in utter disregard for Him. When you think of the rapture, when you think of heaven, is God even in the equation? Or is it just an escape from the mess that this world is in? If that's all you're looking for, you're looking for the rapture for all the wrong reasons. Paul told us he yearned in his being to be absent with the body, from his body and to be present with his Lord. And he did not mean Jesus, he meant the Father. In essence, folks, when you look at it like this, our salvation is just a byproduct of the fact that God so desperately wanted us back in his life. But it couldn't happen because we had a sin problem. He couldn't let us enter into his presence. So something had to be done to deal with our sin problem so that God could have us back in his life. Therefore, Jesus went to the cross. He paid an awful price. He led his only begotten son. Not only go to the cross and bleed and die, but become the one thing he couldn't look upon because Jesus became sin. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. And at that moment, it became midnight at midday. The father turned his back. 
The angels, the, the, the songwriter said, the angels stepped to heaven shore to witness what the Father would not see. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's an awful price that the Father was willing to pay. Our focus have to, has to shift, folks. We've got to start seeing God the Father and start walking with him. You remember green stamps? You used to get green stamps. Some of you younger, just Google it and look it up. But we used to get green stamps. I mean, you'd buy bubble gum, you'd get green stamps. And you'd get these books, and you'd fill the books up page after page after page with the green stamps. And you'd get a catalog, and it had all these wonderful things that you could get with your books. It took about 10,000 books of green stamps to get a pen that would blow up in your shirt pocket, and then you'd throw it away. But you would finally, you'd pick out your treasure, you'd fill up those books with the green stamps, and you'd, you finally had enough for whatever it is that you wanted. You'd fill up these grocery bags, pile them in the car, you'd go to that building, park in the parking lot. What did it say over the door of that building? Redemption Center. Who's doing the redeeming? You are. Not the store. You take those bags of full of green books of green stamps and plop them on the counter, and you choose your prize, your treasure. They give it to you. Do they keep the, the your treasure for themselves? No. It's now yours. You paid for it. You redeemed it. It now belongs to you. Therefore, the Bible tells us, what know ye not that ye are bought with a price and ye are not your own? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. God redeemed us. God paid the price. Now we belong to him. Aretha Franklin. Now you'll go the rest of your life going to church and never hear her quoted in a sermon. Raised by a Baptist preacher, pastored the New Bethel Baptist Church, my hometown, Detroit, Michigan, which was probably the largest or one of the largest churches in all of Michigan at the time. In one of her biggest hits, she has this line. When my soul was in the lost and found, you came along and claimed it. That's redemption, folks. It worked its way into a pop tune. And everybody sings it and never thinks about this. Where did she learn about redemption? Growing up in the home of a Baptist preacher who now no doubt taught her what redemption was, and now she's singing about it. And that's what happened to us. Our soul was in the lost and found. Jesus came along. God came along and claimed it in the blood of Jesus. We've got to start giving God what he paid for. Stop leaving him out of our daily routine. Back in 1995, there was a Christian songwriter who penned a... a, 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 a 
a song that was not all that popular because it was way too convicting. Larnell Harris, I think it was, did a beautiful job singing it, but wasn't all that popular. The words went like this. There he was, just waiting in our old familiar place. An empty spot beside him where once I used to wait. To be filled with strength and wisdom for the battle of the day, I would have passed him by again, but I clearly heard him say, I miss my time with you. Those moments together, I need to be with you each day, and it hurts me when you say you're too busy, busy trying to serve me. When your spirit's empty, there's a longing in my heart wanting more than just a part of you. It's true. I miss my time with you. So I ask you again, are you giving God what he paid for? He paid an awful price. We're only saved because he wanted us back in his existence. Do you understand that? Had God not wanted us that badly, he could have cleared the slate and done something different. But he didn't. He wanted us. So he paid the price. He allowed his son to bleed and die so our sins could be cleansed and removed so we could come into his presence so he could redeem us to himself so he could enjoy that fellowship with us that he longed to have with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Are we giving God what he paid for? Let's stand every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know how you need to respond to this this morning. But I know we need to. I couldn't claim to know your heart. Pastor wouldn't claim to know your heart. I think you do. I'm confident God does. Would you just get alone with God in this moment? And ask him to reveal to you what it is and how it is that he would have you to respond to what you've heard this morning. And then just do it. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Stop looking him in the eye and saying, I don't care what you want, I won't do it. Let's be more like Isaiah. Here are my Lord. Use me. Some of you here may need to be saved. Run to this altar. Let pastor have someone take the word of God and introduce you to the Savior. And Father God, I love you. I thank you. How I, I am so thankful that you wanted me and that you wanted me so badly that you were willing to pay such an awful price. Help me, Father, that each day as I live it, that I would give you every day what you paid for. Father, I pray that if there's one here this morning that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, that they'd come and have that cleansing, have their sins removed, and be brought into that relationship with you. And Father, I pray that you would just do a work in our hearts, that we would walk with you, that we would fellowship with you, that we would serve you as never before. For it's in Jesus' name for sake we ask it. Amen. First verse, come on.